God is invisible, and I could go around quoting Romans and how God can be known through nature and all of those things, but let's be honest, especially since uh, we're moving toward the season of Advent where God decides to become human, it's clear that God's attempts to reveal God's self to us and reveal what God wants and who God is didn't work super well and oftentimes don't feel like they get through to us very easily. Um, And so I'm always suspicious of people who use a series of phrases that I used to use really often. One of them is, the Bible is clear. The other one is like, uh, scripture clearly says. And if you read the Bible, it's full of all of these strange stories of people trying to make sense of the divine while God tries to communicate with people in frankly kind of ridiculous or dumb ways. And it's interesting with that posture that we often find ourselves trying to say that we know what God would want, who God would hypothetically vote for, or that we can claim with certainty what we know, that that we know what God would do in any situation. Because at the end of the day, we're tangible people trying to make sense of a generally intangible spirit trying to make tangible changes in the world. Um, If you were here for Joel last week, right, it'd be like tangible, intangible. I'd have people standing up and raising their hands. But I think the base question matters. What does God want? For me, having come to faith in a pretty legalistic church experience, I thought a lot about what God did not want. God didn't want me to do drugs. God didn't want me to have sex, to drink, to get tattoos, oops, um, or to vote Democrat. What not to do was very clear. And I'm a person who likes clarity. And I recognize that there is a certain level of comfort in being able to know what not to do to hypothetically get God to love us or to appease God's anger somehow. And right, this kind of God that just wants us to avoid bad things isn't very compelling to follow. And it's not the God that we see in Jesus, but that sense of God, the God that wants to like, destroy us for messing up, doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, I recently was driving along, and I picked up a hitchhiker. And being a full-blown caricature of myself, I ended up having a spiritual conversation with them. She had mentioned that she had been really, really Christian for a really long time, and that just like a month ago, she had decided that following Jesus wasn't for her anymore. I was like, oh, that's curious. Tell me a little bit about that. What's going on for you? And she said, well, I used to be, you know, I used to be really like Jesus or like like God or like the idea of God, but I got so tired of praying and being afraid that if I prayed the wrong thing that God would end me. I probably wouldn't want to follow God either. And this was a wild conversation, but one that accurately depicts how a lot of us, even if we wouldn't say that we do, experience God. We go around trying to avoid the wrong thing and doing the right thing because we think that God just wants us not to do a lot of things. Again, I have a lot of sympathy for my hitchhiking friend because no one wants to follow a God like that. And when we talk about God and what we think God's end goals are, what God wants, uh, we often think about things like judgment or wrath or anger, and we get these pictures in the Old Testament that I think we often interpret as God being trigger-happy to destroy people. Um, that God's just trying to end everything, that there's a few folks like Moses and Abraham, the good guys, who aren't good guys, um, who are just like, God's moving toward the button, and, and they're like, no, 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 God, you don't have to do that right now. It seems like God wants just to destroy things over and over again, but that's not the picture we get for most of Scripture. We don't get a my way or the highway God who's more interested in us meticulously doing the right things. Jesus and the God of the Old Testament, the same God, right, tell us pretty simply what God wants. God invites us to love God and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And this is super easy, isn't it? We're all very good at it. That's why we're at church. 
And I, okay, so I use Twitter a lot. Um, it's how I get a lot of my work, fun fact. Social media is a really interesting situation. And I asked a bunch of my people on there, what does God want? And this was the primary answer. And while it fits the narrative of the main things that God invites us to do, it's clear that the idea of loving God and loving neighbor are not particularly woven into the fabric of what we know Christianity in the U.S. to look like. We tend to prefer things, and you might hear yourself or feel like a pit of like, as I say some of these. We might prefer like love God and judge people. Uh, We might prefer ignore God, ignore my neighbor. Or my personal favorite or my most natural practice, know things about God, avoid most people. But Jesus tells us to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it's easy to say or to cross-stitch or to put in a picture frame and put in our homes, but it's much harder to do. And this is especially true if our view of God is centered on avoiding missteps and just trying to will ourselves to do the right thing. Because again, it's pretty hard to do the things that we want to do, as Joel again taught last week. Jesus seems much less concerned about doing the right spiritual activity and more concerned about how we love God love ourselves, and love our neighbors. And I think that we are people who desperately desire to love God and to know God. And sometimes we come to church a little bit afraid. Um, I think we come to church, um, I don't know, maybe some of you are coming to church for the first time in a long time, maybe afraid of how God might want to get you today. Um, But I just I felt like as I was prepping for this week that God just wants to express God's love for a lot of us, that maybe we've been having a hard time receiving that's what God wants, is for us to know God's love. But I think there's a primary barrier for us in experiencing God's love, and is that we are often unable to experience God's compassion. We ourselves don't tend to be particularly compassionate people, Uh, and I'm going to take a quick poll of us just to get a sense of who we are as we operate in the room. Um, If you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality typing, um, there's two kind of categories of people. You have like thinkers and feelers. Um, Thinkers, right, understand the world through logic, through the tangible. Feelers uh, often make decisions out of, like, their gut or the thing that most, like, this really comes out of them. So I'm going to do a show of hands. We're going to go thinkers first and then feelers. How many of you in the room are thinkers? Yeah. What about feelers? Oh, my gosh, there's so many of you. (laughs) I I myself am a hard thinker. Um, And I recently started counseling, and when I was in counseling in this last year, my primary goal was to recognize that I indeed had feelings and to learn how to value them in some way. Some of of us, on the other hand, might need to learn how to um, maybe stop the the overflow of here to here um, and let ourselves be dictated a little bit by action and logic. But I think that oftentimes, uh, in a society as violent and scary as ours is sometimes, Compassion and moving out of letting ourselves be moved is really, really hard. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about compassion, how Jesus offers compassion to us, um, and how we can be people who are compassionate to each other, as well as some of the barriers that keep us societally from being compassionate. So in Matthew 20, if you want to turn to it, if you carry a Bible, um, we're going to be in Matthew 20, 29 to 34. This is a story toward the end of Jesus' life. Um, And before we enter in, I want to just name that compassion can be super exhausting. Compassion can be really painful, and it's hard to put our hearts on our sleeves or to care about all of the things that are happening in the world. And the good news is, in the midst of that, that Jesus doesn't have compassion fatigue. Jesus isn't concerned um, or tired about hearing what's happening for you, the pain that you experience, or the suffering that you endure. But here's our text. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, A large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, 
And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. I'm just going to pray for us really quickly because I think that uh, it is uh, fitting to posture our hearts to try to learn how to have our hearts transformed. Uh, So Jesus, would you do what only you can do? Would you help us to understand who you are, to love you more deeply, and to love others more as a result of it? Amen. Uh, I love this story in the picture that it gives us of Jesus. I love that in the midst of the crowds not caring and actively antagonizing those who are in need, good job, guys, uh, that Jesus is not only where those people are, passing by in their city, he hears them above all of the noise, stops to talk with them, asks them what they want, and he heals them. It's interesting that Jesus, too, doesn't assume what they want. Uh, And in a lot of what we call mercy and compassion ministry in churches, we assume what people need and give them what we think that they need instead of asking what they actually need and giving them that pretty unhelpful, and it's a lot of how we do global missions, so it might be something to pay attention to and how we think about compassion. It's also interesting that these men don't ask for anything spiritual, right? If we were to guess what they would, like, what random people would ask for or what God would want them to ask for, we'd be like, eternal life, to know Jesus and follow him, and they're like, no, we want to see. They have a very practical need that they want met, and Jesus doesn't, doesn't discount them on that. He doesn't say, oh, you should have asked for something more spiritual. He says, no, I'm going to meet the need that you're asking for right now. This is an interesting order. Jesus doesn't make them follow him first and then get healed. He just heals them and then sees what happens. And a bunch of do-gooding Christians, I'm sure uh, you either know do-gooding Christians, and if you don't know any, you probably are one, um, could do a lot to learn from this posture that doesn't arrogantly assume that we know what people need. But the posture that gets close enough to people to know and to ask for what people need and to give them that. It's a way that we, that we undo judgment from our hearts. And this story in and of itself gives us a basic framework for how to be compassionate to people. Be near to them, hear them, dignify people's agency by asking them what they need or want, let ourselves be moved by their stories or their suffering, and do something. And in the overarching story of Jesus, he consistently is said to be moved with compassion. Namely, he was concerned with other people's suffering, misfortune, and pain. This language is used when he's dealing with people who are sick, who have kind of have some evil going on in their lives, and when people are being treated unjustly. We see that when he interacts with people, he's not condemning, demanding, moved by guilt or obedience, but rather just seems to have a reflex toward compassion. He sees, he stops, and he acts. And I think that Jesus does all of this in the very corny Christian sense because Jesus loves people. And he shows us that love isn't just a spiritual activity or an ethereal mindset toward people. I love that we can say things like, oh, I love that community, when we're not even associated with people. That usually just serves to make us look better than we are. (coughs) Jesus doesn't ask why people are suffering, necessarily, or how they got into their suffering situation. He doesn't ask them to politically justify why they should be getting assistance from Jesus. He just gets close and does something about it. We must also note that compassion is a significant theme in all of scripture, and for a good reason. I think in our society that, like, wants to be more tough than we are, compassion can be seen as being overly soft, not holding people accountable for the situations they got themselves in, 
or maybe it's like a hopeless endeavor because if you've been watching the news in any capacity, it's pretty hard to feel like you can have compassion or hope for anything without having compassion and hope for everything and kind of losing ourselves in the midst of it. But compassion is at the very center of who God is. It's one of God's primary motivators. When God describes God's self in the, for one of the first times in scripture um, and introduces himself to a guy named Moses, this is what God says about God's self. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Notice that when God gets to describe who God is, that God doesn't use words like a lot of powerful people in our society do. God doesn't use words like great, strong, powerful, mighty, or anything like that. Instead, God chooses to primarily be known as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiveness, and faithfulness. So the compassion of Jesus isn't a fluke in the story. It's the primary way that God wants to be known. God makes it clear throughout all of scripture that God sees the state of humanity and desires to be close to suffering, no matter how big or small. Many of us in the room don't see ourselves as being worthy of God's compassion, love, or attention at all. The good news, though, is that while we like to compare suffering and make hierarchies to why people shouldn't care about the things that we're going through, Jesus doesn't have a worthiness test for who gets his compassion. Christians must be people who take that posture on, who choose to adopt the way of Jesus that doesn't act like compassion and love are zero-sum games where there is a limited amount, but rather invites, that rather invites Jesus to transform us so we can enter into suffering well with people. But back to this weird story, because there's a lot going on here, and oftentimes I think we want to find ourselves in the best characters, but in most of the stories we typically find ourselves in the worst people in the story. This one is no different. Jesus is walking with presumably a massive crowd of people, and he's, he's functioning as a celebrity healer and justice liberator. He has shown love and compassion and the desire to heal to so many people that their lives have been changed and they've chosen to follow him because they've experienced his compassion. And as Jesus is passing by, two blind men on the side of the road near Jesus start to yell. And this is already wild because these two men don't know what he looks like. They've only heard stories about who he is and the healing that he's offering, and they seem to have a lot of hope. And in their desperation, they start to yell. And maybe no one hears them. And then they yell again. And maybe for the benefit of a doubt, maybe no one hears them again. But as they yell, Jesus, son of David, have mercy, they finally get a response. Rebuke. The crowd tells them to shut up. And the irony here is that they're yelling, Jesus, son of David, and they are signaling that they know that Jesus is the Messiah, a realization that only Peter, a real winner himself, has, has made so far. In their poverty and in their disability, they have something to teach the crowd about who Jesus is. It is not in our cultural framework to see the marginalized as knowing Jesus or having something to teach us about who God is, but Jesus seems to think differently. He hears the shouting, and despite the crowd's rebuking, decides to stop. Jesus seems to think that what they're saying is true enough to stop and that he cares enough to stop for them. And he doesn't take this opportunity to be like, yeah, guys, I am the Messiah. You're right. But instead, he, tends to, he turns and gives them compassion because this is what God wants. But let's get back to the crowd because I think they're probably the people that are most like us. The crowd is fascinating to me because they have likely been healed by Jesus themselves. 
and they've seen and experienced his compassion, and somehow it hasn't rubbed off. They seem more set on keeping the situation from being awkward or disrupting that they rebuke two blind men sitting on the side of the road. This is a pretty low bar. If we saw this happening in public, we would be disgusted by these people, but I think the, the spirit of rebuking disciple is probably in us more than the one of the compassionate God who we say we follow. Like this crowd moving with Jesus toward Jerusalem, presumably to do some really important things, it would be easy to assume that Jesus has better and more important things to do than to stop for two poor men who would typically be found begging every day on the side of this same road. They have probably already passed beggars on their way and did nothing or felt nothing or maybe worse, turned a blind eye to people that they see as inconveniences. And the quick lesson here for us is that just because we have experienced Jesus' love and compassion and healing doesn't mean that without effort that his posture toward us becomes our posture toward other people. Namely, being healed or being a follower of Jesus physically in these people's cases doesn't actually make them act more like Jesus. In our culture, this should give us pause. It means that people, maybe some of us, who claim to follow Jesus and claim to know or claim to know what we think that God wants, may be more interested in preserving the status quo or keeping things moving our way or what we think is God's way than stopping to have compassion and love for others, the thing that Jesus himself stopped to do. We are also people, again, who love to compare pain and discount other people's experiences based on things that are more horrific Um, We shouldn't have to take the worst thing as a comparative measure to say that people are worthy of love or attention or compassion. It's, again, a pretty low bar. And in wanting to compare pain, I think we often uh, play out a sentiment in people's lives, like, what more do you want? Um, As I was watching the elections play out this week, um, and there was, like, a ton of, like, really active voter suppression happening, uh, particularly in black and Latino communities, I kept hearing people from my own communities saying things like, well, you have the right to vote. What more do you want? And I was like, for people to be able to, to vote, right? And so I think that posture of us of what more do you want tells how we think that compassion is a limited resource, that we can only give so much of it because, God forbid, people have holistic lives where they love God and love people and are maybe, God forbid, happy. <coughs> how we respond to things like the news can often tell us how much compassion exists in us um, and how much of Jesus' compassion we choose to emulate. As I look at the particularly, and right, as, as I talk about anything, I realize that everything is political and everything sounds political, and I'm not here to make partisan lines. I'm just observing what I see happening. And as I think about the migrant caravan moving from Central America to the U.S., I become painfully aware of the dehumanizing rhetoric used primarily by our political leaders and by a lot of my friends and family. From labeling people as invaders, accusing people of coming illegally, which they're not, they're seeking asylum, Uh, to perpetuating violent rhetoric about a group of people that, if you didn't know, is one-third children. Um, They just had a baby born on the caravan. Imagine how desperate you would have to be to be eight months pregnant and to flee your country. And I understand wanting to protect our families, our legal system, etc., but it seems as though the U.S. is increasingly leaning toward fear-mongering rhetoric in the name of political gain, rather than leaning on the way of Jesus for healing and compassion and love for all people. Right, this group of people is overwhelmingly seeking asylum because of intense, like things we cannot imagine, intense gang violence, drug cartels, and unemployment that is impacting people's capacity to love their families and to, to be able to feed their families well. Again, I think if we were to take a moment and imagine ourselves in their shoes, it would change the way that our heart posture is when we read stories of people suffering. 
most of us would do anything to give a better life to our families. And so when we look at the news, again, I want us to have a litmus, have, let that be our litmus test for how compassionate we are willing to be. Because I don't want politics to rob us of our capacity to be able to love people well. If these people were in the story, they would be people crying out from across the border, and Jesus' followers find lots of good reasons to say in more words than not things like be quiet or to rebuke people into silence in their suffering, rather than to do what Jesus does, to stop, to engage, and to have compassion because Jesus first had compassion toward us. So for however many political and convenience reasons we have not to be compassionate or to opt out, compassion is the central story of God. Colossians 3 tells us this about how we are supposed to be as Jesus' followers. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, right, motivated out of love, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Doesn't this sound super easy? No. I think I'm getting really tired of Christian spaces where we're like, love people, have compassion, forgive, and have humility. Because when I think about the hard things to do in the world, having compassion, humility, living a life of gratitude, and showing up for other people are among some of the harder things that we do. And I think that's why Jesus has to command us over and over and over again to do them. So can we maybe just be real with each other and quit acting like following Jesus is the easiest thing in the world and rather say, like, this stuff is hard. This stuff doesn't make sense, and it is why we need the divine to help us and to empower us to do it. (coughs) These things are super hard. And if Jesus says the greatest command in Scripture is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, um, this requires something that some of us are really bad at and that we don't hear in church very often, but it is that we love ourselves that we take care of ourselves, that we know God's love for us. Because if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, and then we think about the ways that we care about ourselves, it probably tells us how well we're loving and caring for our neighbors. So care for and love yourself well in order that you would be able to love and care for your neighbors as you love yourself. Have compassion toward yourself so that you can have compassion for others. For some of us, there are things in our past, in maybe the past day or the past week or in our past lives that we just need to let go of to let Jesus offer us compassion and mercy for so that we can offer that kind of compassion and mercy toward others. Jesus doesn't hold anything against you, so I just want to offer you like the freedom of Jesus that comes from his compassion today. Again, following the commandment to love invites us to be fully human people, fragile and full of need. I admit, I am fragile and full of need. And that we are people who offer compassion to others who have need too. So if God shows us undeserved compassion and invites us to have our hearts moved toward greater love and compassion for others, bearing one one another's burdens, what are the primary barriers for us that keep us from being able to see people's humanity fully and have compassion? I would suggest three barriers, a couple that will probably, actually all of which will make us very uncomfortable, I'm sure. One is our culture's obsession with violence or treating people like disposable objects. One is the ideology of thoughts and prayers in the midst of tragedy. And the other is our resistance to being close to others, or rather our resistance to vulnerability. Talking about violence is contentious, but it is necessary. Because we are constantly inundated with violent images 
that create the context for us to be numb to the pain and suffering of others and to turn people into disposable objects. And now I'm not here to propose something like watching violent TV or playing violent video games creates violent action. There isn't significant evidence for that. But what there is significant evidence for is that ingesting a ton of violent uh, image, imagery reduces our capacity to empathize with people suffering well. Think about watching a movie like Lord of the Rings or Braveheart, where you see like thousands of people massacred in like a 30 second or one minute or two minute or three minutes, and you see thousands of people just dropped. But what would happen if for two weeks before you watched that show or that scene, you had to watch a five to 10 minute Pixar style short of each of those person's lives, of them learning to crawl, to walk, going to school for the first time, being bullied, falling in love, having kids, seeing their grandkids born. What if you had to watch that for two weeks, the story of every person, and then you watch that scene in The Lord of the Rings or Braveheart? I am terrified about what that would do to my little soul. We're pretty numb to violence and to suffering. How much more so if we are that numb to other people's suffering in hypothetical senses, uh, can we project that onto people that we only see through screens in the news? Right? It ends up being the same thing for us. We see violence toward folks, but it just looks like the same thing we see all the time. And so in our violent world, we have to be careful not to train ourselves out of compassion. We have to be able to train ourselves to not just avoid people's suffering because it's commonplace for us. I think some of us have to recover the ability to feel well. An antidote to this, other than maybe consuming less violence, which is probably good for a lot of us, is to familiarize ourselves deeply with the stories of people suffering around us and to ask Jesus a simple question. Jesus, when you see this, what do you think? Spoiler, he is always compassionate. And I also understand that it's overwhelming and vulnerable to connect with people's humanity and suffering, but our capacity to do so is what makes us most like God. For an easy on-ramp to compassion, if you're like, that sounds terrible and I don't want to do it, um, I would recommend a book called Tattoos on the Heart by Greg, Boyd, or Greg Boyle, who started uh, Homeboy Industries in L.A. It's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. I read it probably two times a year. So let's talk for a second about thoughts and prayers. Throughout the past few weeks, uh, there have been tons and tons and tons of tragedies in the world. Um, in the last couple of weeks alone, from the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue, the murder of college students in California, which hits me deeply as a college pastor, um, the fires in California that are still taking lives and homes, voter suppression, and school shootings that are so routine, some of them aren't even making the news anymore. The primary response for many Christians to these tragedies is the sentiment of thoughts and prayers. You've probably seen or used it as like a banner on Facebook that something happens and we just post it, thoughts and prayers. And while prayer is unbelievably important and crucial for our lives and world, the concept of thoughts and prayers often functions as a gut impulse when we feel helpless and don't know how to engage with tragedy. It makes us feel like we're doing or saying something when we're not at all. It makes us feel like we're acting compassionately when we just know that we should feel or think or do something, but we don't know what to do. Thoughts and prayers often shift from Jesus' way of compassion and active work for, on people's behalf to feelings that absolve us of responsibility. If I have thoughts and prayers, I don't have to do anything because at least I felt something. Jesus doesn't do that, though. The thoughts and words, or thoughts and prayers uh, ideology now rings hollow because 
in, in absolving us of our responsibility to change, uh, people see us say as Christian people, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, but then never do anything to change the situations that constantly need our thoughts and prayers. If we were actually thinking and actually praying and being moved by our own prayers, then we wouldn't have to say thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. It would be prayer and action and change. Right? Those are really different things. So yes, feel, pray, think good thoughts toward people. But Jesus didn't walk by the men on the side of the road and yell, I'm praying for you, thinking about you and your suffering. That would be ridiculous. What a terrible story that would be in the Bible. But that's what we do all the time. It's what we act like Jesus would want. But Jesus stops. He hears the stories of the suffering, and he acts in compassion. But I think that is connected to our last barrier a lack of closeness to other people. It is hard to care about people who are far away or whose stories we ignore constantly. It's much easier, albeit much more painful, to care about the stories of those close to us, to hear the stories of pain from people who have a direct impact on our lives. It's much more easy to be compassionate toward them. And in a country as polarized as ours, we would often rather stay far away from the stories of those who say they're experiencing suffering if we think that they're politically wrong. Uh, Brené Brown, one of my favorite writers and thinkers, says that people are hard to hate close up, and it stands to reason that people's suffering is hard to ignore close up unless we go out of our way to, to not have to be close to suffering. And I'm going to do some call-outs here, because for some of us, our avoidance of suffering looks every day in common practice. It might look like ignoring anything negative in the news. It might look like driving a lane away from that person asking for money on the side of the road. It might be acting like we don't see someone's request for help that comes over like an annoying source like Facebook Messenger. We're pretty good at avoiding suffering. And I don't say this to shame us, but rather to say that we are often masters of talk, the masters of talking our way out of following the way and compassionate posture of Jesus. When we choose to go to the marginalized and to hurting people, to recognize our own hurting, we don't do so to be our own saviors or to be the saviors of other people. That's Jesus' job. That's not why we do it. We do it to recover our own humanity, to learn about the image of God that resides in all people and to affirm it over and over and over and over again. We recognize that Jesus is found in places of suffering, that Jesus is found on the margins. So in a world full of suffering, I think there are a couple of questions that we can ask that help us enter into a base level of compassionate life. When we see suffering, just ask, am I moved by this? If this were happening to me or someone I loved or knew, how would I feel? And would it change my ideology about this thing? And do I care enough to listen or read or seek out other people's stories in order to be compassionate? Because in the big story of scripture, God invites people from the very start to be blessed by God in order to be a blessing toward others. And the issue in scripture and in our own world is that we are masters of taking the good thing that God has given to us and then making every single excuse we can not to give that thing away to other people. We want to be people who experience God's compassion and love and mercy but never, ever want to give it away, oftentimes. So I want to read a prayer for us as we close out today. Uh, That is on my space device. Um, Space devices. Yeah, and I'm, I've been committing to praying this prayer more often um, to let my heart be moved. Um, because sometimes when I cannot will myself to be more compassionate, I let more wise people uh, pray for me. So I'm going to pray this prayer for us as we close out today.
for an end to the violence perpetuated by harsh words, deadly weapons, or cold indifference. May our homes, our nation, and countries around the world become havens of peace. Let us pray to the Lord. For the grace to see every human being as a child of God, regardless of race, language, or culture, let us pray to the Lord. For the wisdom to receive the stories and the experiences of those different from ourselves and to respond with respect, let us pray to the Lord. For the strength to teach our children how to resolve differences nonviolently and respectfully and the courage to model it in our own behavior, let us pray to the Lord. For our faith community, that we, may be, that we may celebrate and welcome the diverse faces of Christ in our worship, our ministries, our leaders, let us pray to the Lord. For our faith community, that we may respond boldly to the Holy Spirit's call to act together to end violence and racism, let us pray to the Lord. For healing and justice for all those who have experienced violence, let us pray to the Lord. For the protection of all military police and first responders who risk their lives daily to ensure our safety. For fair and just policing that would promote peace and well-being in all of our neighborhoods, let us pray to the Lord. For our public officials, that they would strive to work for fair education, adequate housing, and equal opportunities for, for employment for all, let us pray to the Lord. For our community, that we may cultivate welcome, extend hospitality, and encourage the participation of people of all cultures, ethnicities, backgrounds, genders, and sexualities. Let us pray to the Lord. For the courage to have difficult conversations about injustice. And for a better appreciation of how our words and actions, or even our silence, can impact our communities. Let us pray to the Lord. For solidarity in our global human family, that we may work together to protect those who are most vulnerable and most in need. Let us pray to the Lord. Amen.